Locate a Bible if you can. If you don't have one with you, you'll find one in the uh, seat in front of you probably. We're not going to get there just yet, but we are eventually going to make our way to Exodus 19 this morning. And if you're using the Bible provided, you'll find that on page 71. wasn't that long ago that somebody asked me, I don't remember who it was, it might have been one of you, but we were sitting down having a conversation and they started the conversation kind of like this. They said, uh, hey, have you ever hiked? And I said, stop right there. <laughs> and let me tell you something. Anytime that you ask me a question that begins with, have you ever hiked? The answer is no. Okay. You can be assured, I don't hike. I have nothing against it. Lots of people love it. I don't hike, just like I don't run unless something is ch ch chasing me. I don't hike, which makes this morning's text for me even more remarkable um, because whatever else we might take away from it as we dig into it, one thing is for certain, for an 80-year-old man, Moses is in good shape. <laughs> Exodus 19. Turn to Exodus 19 if you haven't already. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people. And consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord. A look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. God add his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. That's a lot of preaching material in Exodus chapter 19. But this morning, we're just going to focus in on Moses. In verse 3, Moses goes up the mountain. In verse 7, Moses goes down the mountain. In verse 8, Moses goes up the mountain. In verse 14, Moses goes down the mountain. In verse 20, Moses goes up the mountain. And the first thing God says to him is go down the mountain. Verse 25, Moses goes down the mountain. Come up the mountain, go down the mountain, come up the mountain, go down the mountain. Three times in this part of the story, once more in chapter 20, three times more after that, while the people are camped at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and comes down. Mind you, he's probably wearing sandals, not the best hiking boots you can find, carrying the word of God to the people, and the people's word back to God. Now, there's a term for what Moses is doing here. It's called mediator. Moses is the mediator, and this is not a new role for him. He's been playing the role of mediator from the beginning of this journey, but here at Sinai, in his work on the mountain, it is more pronounced, his role as the mediator. Now what, you might ask, is a mediator? And you might answer, a mediator is one who mediates. Thank you very much. Yes, a mediator is one who intervenes between parties to bring about agreement or reconciliation. One who intervenes between parties to bring about agreement or reconciliation. If you have ever purchased a vehicle at a dealership, you know about a mediator, right? The sticker says one thing. You don't want that price. You want a lower price. Uh, so you say that to your salesperson, and that person says to you, let me go talk to my manager, <laughs> right? And in the old days, the manager actually would be up a floor, so you actually get the idea that the edict is coming from on high, maybe one that you shouldn't mess with. And he comes from the, from the sales manager to you and puts a price in front of you. And if you like that price, you might say, okay, I'll go with that. And if you don't like that price, that little dance can be repeated multiple times. And it often is. The salesman is the go-between. The salesman is the one who goes up to the sales manager, back down to you, brings your word to him and his word to you until the two of you can reach agreement, until the two of you can come together. So in Exodus 19, Moses is the mediator of the covenant between God and the Israelite people. He carries God's word down the mountain. He carries the people's response back up the mountain. Moses is the one who brokers the deal between God and Israel. Moses is the one who explains the terms of the relationship between God and his people. Moses is the one who brings both parties to agreement. God says that if the Israelites will obey him fully in all things and keep covenant, then they will be his treasured possession. They will become a king, 
kingdom of priests. They will be a holy nation. And the people pledge at that point to do everything, to do all that the Lord has said. So there's agreement. That's Moses, the mediator of this covenant. The fact that he's a mediator of this covenant is significant for several reasons. First, it confirms Moses' role for the people, establishes him as their chosen leader, chosen of God and necessary. If we were to go back to Exodus 14, and this is one of the joys of making our way through a book and trying to preach it and teach it expositionally, we get the larger context, the bigger flow. If we go back to Exodus chapter 14 and the final verse of that chapter, the Israelites have just been, you may recall, wonderfully, dramatically rescued. They have walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when they got to the other side, God caused that sea to come in and it, and it swelled over their pursuers and it killed the Egyptian army that was chasing them. They had been delivered and they are celebrating and they are dancing and they are praising God. And, 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 and at that time, the scripture says, they feared God and they worshiped God and they put their trust in God and also his servant Moses. But as we have seen, that trust, that confidence that they had in Moses lasted all of three days. It lasted until they came to a difficult time. It lasted until they were challenged. They rebelled against Moses when things weren't going the way they thought they ought to go. They questioned Moses' motives. They doubted his good intentions. Remember, they accused him. What, have you brought us out here to kill us with thirst? You brought There aren't enough graves in Egypt? You brought us all the way out here so you can kill us with hunger? What is going on? At one point, they were so riled up, Moses told God, I think they're going to kill me. Clearly, their loyalty to Moses is fickle, their understanding of Moses as a necessary part of God's plan for their continued deliverance was, was spotty at best. Which brings us actually to a portion of scripture that we haven't explored, but open your Bibles again if you would for just a second to chapter 17. Chapter 17. This is a story of Israel's first physical confrontation since coming out of Egypt. Exodus 17, I just want to read a few verses starting, I think, in verse 8, and we'll make our way forward to, say, verse 13 or so. Exodus 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with Sword. Now, this is a fascinating narrative because there's a battle raging. It's the first time the Israelites are having to physically go, even though they, were, uh, they left Egypt ready for battle, armed for battle. This is the first time they actually have to go to battle. And there's this battle that's raging here against this, uh, the Amalekites. And uh, as we read through the text, though, our eyes are drawn not to the battle. We, we see very little about the battle. The writer of the text draws our eyes to this old guy sitting on a rock holding a stick. 
Right? That's what's happening. He's holding this staff sitting on a rock. Moses is. When he holds up his hand that is holding the staff of God, the Israelites prevail. When he gets tired and he drops his hand, the Amalekites begin to win. And this problem emerges then when Moses gets physically exhausted. He can't do it, right? So they bring him a rock to sit on, a nice comfy rock. And he sits down on a rock, but he still, his arms are tired. And if any of you have ever tried to hold your arms up for any length of time, it's a nice little trick we used to play at Baptist Youth Camp, who can hold the can of soup out there for the longest. We don't do that anymore. It's considered abuse today. Um, <laughs> but at one point, it was fun. Um, Moses is tired, and, and he can't hold his hand up anymore, and he can't then as a result, hold the staff of God up anymore, which might make us wonder, well, why doesn't just somebody come along and pick up this staff and hold it up? And the answer is because it's not the staff that tips the scale. It's Moses wielding the staff. The staff isn't some kind of magic wand, okay, that can be operated by just about anybody. It symbolizes God's power, and it symbolizes God's presence, which is mediated by God's chosen leader. When he can't do it all by himself, two men come to his aid and hold his arms up high, Aaron and her. That's a preview in chapter 17 of what we read in chapter 18 of the spreading out of the work that Moses cannot do this all by himself. How many hands do make light work? How we do live in community. And if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to share the load. This is a bit of a preview there. It's also a bit of a preview of the need the Israelites are going to have for a judicial system to expedite the laws which are coming down in chapter 20. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. I already did. The battle against Amalek confirms the central role of Moses in God's plan to save and sanctify his people. If there was a question in the Israelite mind as to the necessity of Moses or whether or not Moses was needed for them to be successful, it should have been answered on that day. Yes, they need him. And it was God's intention that they learn that. Not only that they should learn that they need Moses, but beyond that, that they should be able to trust in him. Because having leaders that you can't trust in is not a good place to be. And look at, look at verse 9 of chapter 19. God is speaking. He says, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever. NIV says God is going to speak in the presence of the people so that they will always put their trust in you. When the people heard God's voice coming out of the cloud, then they would believe Moses which puts us in mind, or ought to, of another time when God spoke out of a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus had invited three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to join him. And at that point, God said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You know, when God speaks to you from a cloud and says, Listen to somebody, you're going to listen to him, right? We can imagine this confirmed for Peter, James, and John, what they had suspected was true and what they were laying their lives on as being true, this inspired them to believe even more resolutely in Jesus. And in the same way, Moses is affirmed by God, by God's voice coming out of the cloud. He's, he is affirmed as God's prophet. He is affirmed as God's spokesman. He's a man who can be trusted. He's a man who can be believed. 
when the people see this and when they hear the special relationship that Moses has with God and how he represents them to God and how God speaks with him, his role is confirmed for the people. Secondly, as a meteor, Moses' role is confirmed for himself. In chapter 3, in verse 12, when Moses first encountered God on this mountain, whose past he's becoming quite familiar with, it seems, going up and down, God said to him, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So back in chapter 3, God was already calling the shots because God knows what's going to happen. And he says, when you get those people out, this will be a sign for you. You're going to bring them here and you're going to serve me right here. In this place where I've called you, you're coming back to it. It will be a sign to you. And that's what Moses is doing. Moses is serving God right here on this mountain and he's preparing the people of Israel to do the same. All these jaunts up and down are fulfillments of God's word. A sign to Moses that he's in the right place, that he's doing the right things according to the plan of God. I have found that there's really nothing like adversity and opposition to make a person question his or her choices. There's nothing like somebody resisting you or talking bad about you to make you wonder, well, maybe, maybe I am in the wrong. Maybe they are in the right. We all still have these high hopes, don't we? That if we do the right thing, the way will be smooth. Where does that come from? Read the Bible. If we read the Bible, we could not reasonably hold to such a silly thought. You read the Bible about martyrs and people being killed and sawed in half. People, the Bible says this world doesn't deserve these people. They did everything right. I was just reading in 2 Chronicles about some guy, I don't even remember his name. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he would go and warn a king. And I'm reading in just this much of the Bible, and he goes and he warns the king, and he's killed. I'm like, what? That's the story? The Spirit of the Lord came upon you so you could go give a warning and be killed? Gracious sakes alive. Sometimes when you do the right thing, it, the way is not going to be smooth. But we have that thought. Now, we know evidence here that Moses has this thought in mind. But we, being human, might wonder that when the, the going gets tough, we begin to question, are we on the right path? Are we going in the right direction? Are we doing the things the Lord is calling us to do? So Moses, by coming to this mountain and serving God on this mountain, his calling is being confirmed to himself because he's doing just what God long ago said he would do. Third, as mediator, Moses performs the necessary task of making the people ready to meet with God. God told him, go down and consecrate the people. To consecrate means to make them holy, right? How exactly Moses is to do this, we don't know, and the text does not say. It only says in verse 14 that he, that he did it. He consecrated them. So we are left to speculate a little bit. But I think we can do this in this instance without having to use our imaginations too much. Because back in chapter 13, when Moses was told to consecrate the firstborn to God, he did so by means of animal sacrifice. And if we fast forward to Exodus 29, where Moses is told to consecrate the priesthood of Aaron, we see that he does so again with animal sacrifice. 
In sacrifice, animal sacrifice, the guilt of one party is conferred to the object of the sacrifice, to the animal. Thus, sin is acknowledged, and its debt is paid through the shedding of blood. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to the death of something. We learned that in the very beginning of our Bible, right? After Adam and Eve sinned and became aware of their nakedness, and they were ashamed, what did God do for them? God made coverings for them of what? Of animal skins. Now, I suppose he could have conjured these skins, ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing, the way that he made the world, but I don't think he did. I think something that's easy to overlook here is that to cover the consequence of sin, even in Eden, blood had to be shed. So it seems consistent and likely, even though we would admit it's not explicit in the text, that in consecrating the people, Moses performed some kind of animal sacrifice. That as a mediator, he facilitated the atonement of their sin to make them presentable to God. And you know where this is leading, right? The fourth, final reason for today that Moses' role as a mediator is significant is because in it we see the prelude to another greater mediator, capital M, who would one day come and stand in the gap between God and his people, bringing God to them and them to God, establishing a new covenant, atoning for sin, making them holy, making them presentable, bringing them to agreement and reconciliation. That mediator, of course, is Jesus Christ, God's own son. God himself. He is the mediator that we all need. He is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who reconciles us to God. He said of himself, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the mediator that we all need. Of note, Moses, the mediator, had to go up to God. Jesus, the mediator, came down to the people. In humility, as we read in Philippians 2, or more explicitly in John chapter 1, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Moses, the mediator, brokered a covenant between God and his people, but that covenant would be broken by the sins of Israel. Jesus, the mediator, brought news of a new covenant. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples that he was making a new covenant. This is a new covenant in my blood. That he would be the sacrifice for sins once and for all. That he would lay down his perfect life and subject himself to the death he did not deserve as a substitute for those who do deserve death. And that's you, and that's me. This new covenant was prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which is the covenant we're talking about that Moses is brokering on Sunday. Not like that one, my covenant that they broke 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This new covenant is God's promise to forgive the sins of those who will confess. His promise to put His laws in us, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go. For if I go, I will send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. This covenant is God's promise to make us His people. Apostle Peter tells of this, how it is true for those who are in Christ. He borrows language that should sound familiar because it comes from Exodus 19. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received. That's the new covenant that will not be broken, that is sealed by the blood of Christ. Moses, the mediator, likely made the people holy by shedding the blood of animals. Jesus, the mediator, makes us holy, shedding his own blood on the cross. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He reigns with God, seated at the right hand of the Father, and to this day continues his work, interceding for us, his children, in order that one day he may present us all to God. All who by faith believe in him will one day be presented to God by Jesus without spot, without wrinkle, holy, and without blemish. Moses was a great mediator. Jesus is the greatest mediator. Let's stand and sing our concluding song this morning. No tongue can bid me 